Okay, so if you've got your Bible, turn up to Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parameus and Nicholas from Antioch to convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and brought them to the teachers of the law and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. But we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Paddy's going to come and speak to us in our final talk on social justice. Okay, well, a warm welcome to you if uh, this is your first time at an EU public meeting and uh, if you're coming back after a number of weeks... Uh, then uh, thank you for returning for the, last, for the third in our series. Uh, one of the things that I want to try and do uh, today is uh, move from where we were two weeks ago where we looked at, uh, in some sense, the broad overview of what the Bible is saying about justice and the way in which the character of God is to be lived out in the people of God. Uh, last week we considered this in the context of what it meant to live with regard to a personal ethic and we spent some time looking at that. Uh, this week what I want to do now is move to the next step and deal with the way in which we are to be living out the character of God personally, but in the context, and the context is within community, both Christian community and within the wider community. Uh, the thing that I suggested last week is that to live justly involves four things. And I'm going to, by the time we finish today, have added another two to this. I wanted to propose that living justly involved four things. Firstly, it reflected the character of God. Secondly, it meant that we'll, our living justly will generally be directed towards those who are not as provided for. Firstly, it reflects the character of God. Secondly, we'll generally be directed towards those who are not as provided for. Thirdly, will necessarily involve us giving up something. And in this case, I think it's two particular things. Firstly, goods. 
serial things, stuff, if you like, but secondly, it will involve giving up some form of social capital. I tried to argue this from the James 2 passage last week. It involves us being seen with people who might not be as highly regarded as we otherwise would be. It involves us moving away from our existing social circle to those who the rest of our peers might think are less desirable socially. And fourthly, living justly involves an active, ongoing other person-centredness. It involves an active, ongoing other person-centredness. That's not to say that you can carry out one particular act of justice. But what I'm proposing is that I think the weight of Scripture leads us towards proposing that living justly is an active, ongoing thing, rather than, if you like, more of a legalistic requirement that once you have done one act of justice, you can claim to have lived justly. So the four things, the character of God, generally be directed towards those who are not as provided for, Thirdly, involve us giving up something. And fourthly, an active, ongoing, other person-centredness. So we want to start once again briefly with the Old Testament. And in the case of the Old Testament, what did this look like for the people? Well, Israel, in its particular context, when it was a nation, was a theocracy. Anyone want to give us a working definition of a theocracy? modern-day examples, perhaps? Iran. Yeah, that was one that came up on Tuesday. Iran, in many respects, is probably the closest we've got to a theocracy these days. Some argue that the uh, Mormon church in the state of Utah is essentially a theocracy. So a theocracy is really that there is no separation between church and state. They are essentially combined. And the rule, both in church and state, is by divinity. So in Israel, the rule of both church and state was from Yahweh. Perhaps in big modern day illustrations, it's from those who claim to speak with the voice of the divine. I'm not necessarily suggesting that uh, we want to try and advocate for a theocracy now here in this country, but what I want you to understand is the context into which we give this illustration is a theocratic context. And in this case, the way in which God allowed for the provision for those who were less well off was through the temple, essentially. Those who were the poor or who were the widows would come to the temple as, if you like, a social security net. The tithe that was given and sometimes the offerings that were given by the people of Israel, some of which were used in the sacrificial system, some of which were used for the priests and the Levites because they weren't given an allocation of land from which they could actually acquire food for their basic needs. But some of what was given through the tithing and through the sacrificial offerings was actually meant to be put aside for those who were less fortunate in the community. And so we see clearly demonstrated here that those who were in need went to the place where God would provide. In this case, it was the temple. And where did the provision come from? Well, it didn't just miraculously appear. It actually came from those within the Christian community giving up some of what they had for the sake of other people. Now, that was the sort of the theocratic example, but when we move to the New Testament, so in Acts chapter 6, if you've still got that passage open that was read for us, you see a New Testament understanding and in many respects outworking of this. See, in Acts chapter 6, we've got a newly established Christian community. The sort of the first part of this we looked at last week when we looked at Acts chapter 4. Remember in Acts chapter 4 that whenever anyone was in need, some who had more would sell, in this case, sell their land, give it to the apostles and the apostles would then distribute 
so that all were equally provided for. With regard to basic needs, I take it. Not so that everyone had exactly the same amount of stuff, but so that all were equally provided for. Some may still have had extra blocks of land. Some may may have been without land. But the fact remained that none were in need. All had been provided for. And so now a situation arises in Acts chapter 6 where what was originally set up and presumably was working well actually now starts to break down a little bit. So you've left a regret for us, a particular group of Jews, in this case it's the Hellenistic Jews, the, sorry, widows, a particular group of widows, in this case it's the Hellenistic widows, the non-Jewish widows, complain that they're not actually receiving the distribution of food. The claim is that they're not being treated justly, they're not being treated equitably. And so what do the apostles do? Well, the apostles, I take it, establish a priority. And at this point, some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, I've heard this passage taught before, the priority is evangelism over social justice. I'm not quite convinced that's what the passage says. So if you think that the passage clearly says evangelism over social justice, go back and look at it again. I suspect what's going on here in Acts chapter 6 is that the apostles, what do they say in verse 2, sorry, in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. I take it that the reason why they make that decision is because of the command that was given for them back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The priority for this particular group of people is the command from the Lord Jesus that says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and the ends of the earth. They are acting in accordance with their already stated and given priority. And the logical outworking of that is they will then commit themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. But notice also the other priority decision that is made and that is that the poor will not be neglected. I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy to pit evangelism and social action against one another as I'll explain a little bit more in a minute. Here both of them are actually given equal priority. And so in this case, what are the means by which this is brought about? Well, they appoint another seven. Notice the way in which they're appointed. It's not particularly based on skills but it's based on character. And look at the example given of one of them, this man Stephen who's appointed. And some would say he's appointed to just distribute food, as if that was somehow a less worthy task, a more menial role. But notice his character. I take it that if you compare his character with others, particularly the apostles, his character is actually consistent with those who are devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. Notice the way in which he's received within the community down in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Perhaps surprisingly, in the same way that the apostles did great signs and wonders among the people. Or perhaps not surprisingly. Because one of the greatest evangelistic speeches that takes place in the New Testament occurs in the following chapter. And as you will well know, or if you don't, you've now turned over to look, it's from Stephen when he's brought before the council and has to give an account of the way in which he's acting. This is the man who was appointed with six others to ensure that this particular group of widows were treated justly, that they were equally provided for. So my question is, should we be expecting a similar thing from our churches today? The pattern of the New Testament with Acts 4 and Acts 6 How much was it just a description of what was taking place? 
versus how much is it, if you like, a prescription for the way in which our churches should be acting today? What should we expect of our local churches, the Christian communities in which we gather? Well, at this point, we need to make sure that our current situation is rightly understood. It is not a theocracy, nor are we living in first century Palestine. It's clear that at times, in the past and at the moment, um, the church and the state have been established as separate entities in the Australian context, and that our government has, for various reasons, assumed significant responsibility for the social welfare of its citizens. Now, the extent to which it does that, at some point you may choose to debate based on what side of politics you're on. But the reality is that the government, the state, has actually assumed more of what was originally the church's responsibility. Having said that, we also do well to recognise that many of the social services carried out, generally under the not-for-profit sector, are actually run or have been established by churches or church entities. That's really the landscape in which we now operate. I think part of our challenge in answering this question, should we expect the same from our churches today, is that up until recently, church was the centre of community. So if you watch the uh, BBC dramas, on now on ABC2, things like Miss Marvel, Agatha Christie, all those sorts of things, where everyone always dies in those little quaint villages. Invariably, there's a minister, he's always wearing a dog collar, and uh, the local village has, as it has at its centre the pub, that's right, yes, but it also has a church. See, village and local community life often revolves around the church. And to some extent, that was true probably about 50 years ago in Australia. But today, life is lived differently. Another question I think our local churches need to keep asking, and if you belong to a local church, and if you're a Christian, can I encourage you to regularly attend local church? And if you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to at least go and check one out? But part of the question I think our local churches need to keep asking is, would our community miss us if we closed? Think about your local church. Think about the community in which the church operates. Do you think anyone in the community, other than the Christians, would miss the church if it stopped running? Now, let me give you a little anecdote. Um, some point in the past, I went door knocking with another church, not a church that I attend at the moment, and I was just sort of door knocking around the neighbourhood. We were within about a kilometre of the local church. I knocked on a lady's door. I said, hello, I'm from the local church up the road. And she gave me a bit of a sort of a quizzical, stunned sort of look. And I thought, well, that's probably not uncommon. Most people don't like it when Christians come to their door because Christians are bothersome, annoying sort of people. <laughs> that's the assumption. Sometimes Christians can be annoying and bothersome, by the way. Anyway, I digress. And so we had a conversation. We had a convers- I had a conversation with a lady. And one of the things I said to her was, uh, part of the reason is we're going around the community, we're knocking on people's doors, and we're wondering if, you'd li- if we'd like to invite you to an event that the church is running. And she said, what, at the church? I said, yes, at the church. She said, I thought the church had closed. And I went, No. I said, now you mean that church? I described the church I was from just to make sure we were talking about the same church. She said, yes, I never see anybody there. I assumed it had closed years ago. And I tried to persuade her that the church was actually open and was running an event at which she'd like to come. She ended up not coming. It was the first time in many years any Christian and anyone from the local church had actually knocked on her door. I didn't even attend the local church. I was just helping them out with a couple of other people. I, mean, I had a conversation with the minister and I said, politely, because this was a number of years ago, just how active is the local church in the community? He said, oh, we're very active. 
said, okay, you sort of relayed the conversation to him. He said, we run church on Sunday morning. And I felt like saying, and what else do you do? The only time the church appeared to be active, or actually probably was active, was a church service on Sunday morning. For the rest of the time, the lights were off, the building was shut and no one was around. Any surprise that the lady down the street thought the church had closed? She probably sleeps in on Sunday morning and isn't up at 8.30 or 9 o'clock or whatever time they ran their church service. Would your local church be missed if it closed? What impact does your local church make on the community? I think one of the challenges that we've got is partly weighing up this tension between evangelism and social action. Now, both of these things are actually articulated in the Scriptures. Both of them are good, right and proper things to be doing. I take it on the way to Scripture. So, my question is, why would you withhold one of these two good things from people? Why would you withhold one of these two good things from people? Why would you withhold evangelism from people, from the community? Whereby the declaration that Jesus is Lord and Saviour and died and rose again from them, for them, clearly shows us that God's justice has rightly been done, that we might be saved from His wrath. Why would you withhold such a great message for people? But at the same time, why would you withhold the command of God to live justly in this world and so not articulate and practice social action in the local community? Now, at this point, because you're all Gen Y, we're, we're all Gen Y, at that point we'd say, yes, 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 but we live in global communities. We don't live in local communities anymore. Really? You really want to try and mount that argument that you live in a global community? Yes, I'm intimately connected to 7 billion people around the world. Did you write what with your 450 Facebook friends? I think we make excuses. The reality is, if we chose to, if we prioritise, you actually could get to know the person living two doors down from you. It's actually not that difficult. Do you know what you do? You get out of your house or your apartment, you walk two doors down the road, you knock on their door and you introduce yourself. Hi. I'm so-and-so. We're neighbours. And I think they will give you a very strange look and ask you, what do you want? What's the problem? Why are you here? But actually, it's as easy as doing that. See, I think what happens is we make excuses and we actually put off being involved in our local community. Would your church be missed if it closed down the local community? What impact does your local church have in the community? Another point to note here is we do well to recognise what is the core business of local church. In this case, core business, I take it from the pages of the New Testament, core business of local church is the gathering of God's people to worship God through word and spirit. Now, that moment of gathering and worship should be both an event and an opportunity for Christians but at the same time should be an opportunity for others to be able to come in and see what that li- that's like. But we just need to pause and recognise that when local churches engage in social action or social justice, that the church themselves may not actually be the best group of people, nor be the best equipped to actually get on and do it. And sometimes that's used as an, as an excuse not to do it. Sometimes this is not realised and they go and do it and actually don't do it as well as it could be done. Sometimes you need to get the experts in. 
You need to actually call somebody like an Anglicare or a Wesley Mission or another organisation where they've got the particular skills and abilities necessary for the local context. But don't use that as an excuse to not do social justice nor do it well. In the last couple of weeks, um, as we've talked about moving from a per developing a personal framework and now as we move to a social framework, I think one of the aspects that helps in this regard is the idea of Christian hope. That actually the Christians believe both in their personal ethic and in their social ethic that the world has purpose and meaning. That it's actually going somewhere and the place that it's going from a Christian understanding for those who are right with God is a very hopeful place. It's a restoration of right relationship both among individuals but most importantly between individuals and God in the new heavens and the new earth. If you missed out on, on AMCON six weeks ago, can I encourage you to go and listen to the talks to consider the implications of this, both theologically and personally. I think the idea of Christian hope should actually drive us towards action rather than drive us to inaction. See, sometimes it, it leads us towards inaction because we go, well, the world is such a horrible place now. This is going to be so much a better place, so I guess I'll just wait for the return of the Lord Jesus and pray that he comes back even more quickly. As I think the idea of Christian hope actually should drive us to action that says, this is the reality of where we're going, and I want as many people to experience that, even in a broken and shadowy form as it is, that they might see that as an attractive thing and turn back to the Lord Jesus. With the same hope that we have that one day they will be restored relationally before him and before others. So, why then... Do we not act? What stops us from acting? I've got four statements and I'm going to be blunt in my answers. I think the first thing that stops us from acting is a lack of understanding about what God expects. I hope the last couple of weeks and this week has given you a greater understanding of what I think the Bible says in this regard. If you're still not convinced, take the Bible for yourself, friends, and go and read it. Pray over the passage and ask that God would give you insight into His Word that you might have a fuller and deeper understanding of what is it that God expects with regard to social justice. Go and talk to those whom you respect, your peers, your elders, as they wrestle with the issue. Go and read books. Some of the stuff by Tim Keller is very helpful. Second thing that stops us from acting, I think an uncertainty as to whom to help. Where do I start is the question. I just don't know who to help. My question is blunt. I don't think it matters start somewhere. Now I'm wary about uh, placing you back under legalism but if you need a little bit of legalism on the back of the outline there are six places that you might like to start. Just start with one of these to which you say yes Paddy but because I'm Gen Y I'm just I can't make decisions because I've got too many options. You know what you do then? You fold the outline in half. (laughs) Heads or tails? Heads or tails? Can't decide? Just pick one. Start somewhere. Just do something. It doesn't have to take up days of your week. It might take up one hour in a month. It might take up one day in a year. Start somewhere. I think the third thing that stops us from acting is we just don't think we're able to do it. I don't know if I've got the skills. I I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. There's this sort of perceived inability to act. And at this point, can I nicely, nicely bring you down a few pegs or perhaps lift you up a few pegs 
And so if you genuinely think like that, then even before thinking Christianly, our country has major problems. Because you are sitting at one of the finest educational institutions in the country. You are some of the smartest people that our secondary education system has produced. And you sit there and say, oh, I don't think I've got the ability to act. Who then does from your generation? If anything, you are the ones who have more than enough ability to do it. And I haven't even yet tried to persuade you Christianly, knowing what I know about you and the way in which God has gifted you, both individually and corporately. We are richly blessed having a group such as yourselves. Maybe a little bit more blessed than the group at the Tuesday public meeting. But that aside... But that aside, I think one of the things that stops us is this inability to act. We are more than able and more so when we ask for God's help in this regard. I think the fourth reason why we uh, don't act, and this is an Andrew Cameron has suggested this in one of the articles I was reading about him, is that we have an emotional detachment to the problem. We have an emotional detachment to the problem. My solution for you for this is you need to spend time and presence with other people who are less fortunate than yourself. Spend time and be in their presence. That an emotional attachment may form if you are feeling too emotionally detached. The media actually does us a disservice in this regard. We actually, I think, become desensitised to the magnitude of a problem because we just see it all the time. Maybe you need to go and spend time and presence that you might have an emotional attachment. Despite these things, I think the greatest blockage is we need to have a change of heart. We need to be transformed. Which is why I ask once again, but this time not with a show of hands, were you able to spend 15 to 20 minutes in the week? Were you able to stop and reflect on your life and ask that God would change you and transform you? To finish, I made four points last week by way of application, Christian wisdom, which I'm going to come back to and reiterate them in another form. I suggested these four things. Firstly, be more other person centred in thought and in action. Be more other person centred in thought and in action. And in this case, I think as transformed people, it means spending less time thinking about ourselves and more time thinking about other people. Spend less of your waking hours thinking about what you will do next and ponder how other people are going. And hopefully that will drive you to prayer for them, but at the same time it will transform your way of thinking about other people. But then I think it's also a change in thought and in action and this requires you to actually get out and do something. So, on a personal note, over the last few weeks, as I've reflected on the things that I'm teaching, the question for me has been, what, how will my life change? I've come up with three things. The first is, Partly that I think I will start, as a family, we will start sponsoring some children. Now, some of you might say, well, actually, I've been doing that for years. To which I say, yes, some of us are slower learners than you. So, please bear with us. Part of this was driven about by watching the SBS documentary a week or so ago, to go back to where you came from. I have a strong emotional attachment to children. I have six of them. So, I have six times an attachment to those who have. And to see the plight of some of those children is actually emotionally challenging and difficult. That they do not have nearly the basic necessities of life that has been provided for me. What will it look like for me practically? It will mean at some point I will get around to sponsoring perhaps one or more children. Which organisation will I use? I'm not sure yet. 
but I'm committing to go and work it out. The second thing, my wife and I, as we watched the show, were moved particularly by some of the refugees and their experiences in sort of making the transition into this country. So we've started considering how we as a family might help other refugees. Now, in our house, it's not a particularly large house. It's a reasonable sized house. There's eight of us living in the house. So what the heck? Why don't we invite some more people in? <laughs> it sort of works with eight. It'll probably work with maybe 10 or 11. I'm being serious about this. That may come at, that will come at significant cost to us. But that's the commitment that we're going to consider making. It might not come about. It might not be possible. For particular refugee services might say, I think there's more than enough people in your house at the moment. It may be that once our children leave home at some point, that that's when it becomes an option for us. The decision is not one that we make lightly nor quickly because there are more involved in the decision-making process than just myself. The third thing is, part of the reason why we have a slightly larger house is because a couple of years ago our house was too small because there were eight of us living in it, so we decided to make it a little bit bigger. So we couldn't afford to get a builder to do it, so I actually built the house. Seriously, I actually built the house. It's still standing, by the way. Um, <laughs> give a close note. So I wonder whether or not with those certain skills that I've acquired, I could actually go and help other people build their houses. So I have an emotional attachment because I have provided shelter for my family. And I know there are other families who are unable to do that for themselves. So maybe I should go and help them voluntarily. What is it for you? What does it look like for you to be other person-centred in thought and in action? I'm not expecting that all of you will suddenly transform your life today. Although if that happens, praise God. But will you make the commitment to work towards that and do it in an ever-increasing, ongoing way? The second significant point of application is that the poor are rarely considered in our decision-making matrix. And at this point, I want to ask you the question, every time you make a decision, will you ask yourself this question? How does my action or inaction affect those less fortunate than myself? How does my action or inaction affect those less fortunate than myself? Right from the very practical level, if you're going off to buy lunch after public meeting and you realise that you've got 10 or $12 in your wallet, so you could potentially spend 10 or $12 on lunch. Do you need to spend that much money? What would it look like if you only spent $5? What would you do with the rest of it? Despite the fact that this is actually second lunch because you had lunch about an hour ago, is that actually a necessary thing that you need to, to do? Because the poor rarely feature in our decision-making matrix, what would it look like for you if they did? What would the implications of that be? Maybe, in some sort of way, you'll be in a position where you can say, actually, I can financially help people more than I thought I could. Thirdly, in the last minute, I think I want to encourage you to keep resisting the sense of entitlement and argue for the rights and entitlements of others. This may come about through advocacy. It may come about through being a voice for those who are unable to have a voice in whatever form it takes. And lastly, as I said last week and remind you again this week is, can I encourage you, friends, to be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Resist the consumeristic and hedonistic lifestyle. There is nothing inherently wrong in and of itself with stuff. The Lord will provide you with your basic needs and for many of us, over and above that. But friends, resist the desire to acquire wealth. Resist the desire to acquire more possessions than you need. And part of the way to do that is actually involve others in your thought and action. 
Um, up until now, whenever I talk to people and they say, I'm working longer hours so I will have more money so I can be more generous. I'm changing my mind instead of encouraging that. I'm now saying, work as long as you need to to supply and meet your basic needs. And then work no more. For some of you, a couple of years down the track, you may only need to work four days a week. And your basic needs will be far, far easily met. And in the other day a week, why don't you go and volunteer somewhere and give of your time and skills for others less fortunate than you? And do you know the other thing it does? It potentially removes a temptation. And that temptation is, what do I do with this lump of money that I don't need? And should I really give all of it away or maybe just some of it? There's something to ponder for the future. Resist the lure of materialism. Living justly, to conclude. Our four points that I stated up front. The character of reflecting the character of God, directed towards those who are not as provided for, giving up something, involving an active, ongoing other person centeredness, and the last two. Living justly, fifthly, recognizes the limitations of achieving justice in what is still a disobedient world before the return of the Lord Jesus. There are certain limitations in achieving it. And that's why we long for the day where the Lord will return. And lastly, but nevertheless, despite that, seek justice for all with the means provided for by God. For some of us, the means will be greater. For others of us, the means will be less. But with whatever God has provided for you, seek justice for as many as you're able to with the means provided for you by God. Why don't I pray for us? Father God in heaven, we ask, please, for your help. We know that we do not always live justly in your world and we ask, please, Father, that you would help us to do so more and more until the Lord Jesus returns. We pray these things in your name. Amen.